You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. I am reunited with my co-host Mark Allen. Hello, Mark. Hi. How's it going? For this episode, we at PGAP talk a lot about systemic change and some of the broader strokes of systemic change which is required. But I thought it was good to have a voice and provide a platform for some of the community groups in southwestern Western Australia who are doing very good work. And I think a lot of the grassroots community groups are doing such essential work, but it's often underrated or overlooked. There are heaps of grassroots organisations working hard to try and mitigate some of the damage that our growth-based society is causing. One of the reasons why it's important, of course, is it because it raises awareness to people that we can actually fight back against this. We still have some form of democracy. A lot of the time you do feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, but it's constantly increasing awareness and showing people that there are other ways of looking at the world. So as well as being important damage mitigation, it's also an important way of maybe a conduit towards leading towards systemic change. And that's what I like about grassroots activism. If we can find a way of finding a common thread that combines all of these groups together, we can underlie all of our work with uh, the bigger message, which is uh, degrowth and also personal change, the way we approach the world. So we took these very questions and issues to three very special guests for today's episode. Two of these I met when I was staying in Perth, who are Andrew St John from Safe and Scenic 2J Road and Chris who is very involved in the Rethink Eastlink, which is another major road infrastructure scheme which is proposed to go through the Perth Hills and around Darling Scarp Country, a very ecologically fragile and precious landscape as <laughs> so many infrastructure projects seem to like cutting through. Uh, so there were two guests and our third is Annabelle Pauly who lives near Albany and who we met at a permaculture festival last year who coordinates uh, Friends of Yakamai Forest and um, you've had a chance to walk through the Yakamai Forest uh, ratepayer land uh, currently. I have and it was lovely really nice understory there as well the the land there is very uncontaminated by feral weeds it's really really good bushland. It's bittersweet because you walk through it and you, you, you marvel at its beauty and then you realise how endangered it is and how its future is very much in doubt. So it was very empowering to actually know that we we actually have a campaign that we potentially could win here. So Fingers crossed. Mm. To each of these guests, we'll hear from each in turn during the interview and I posited five questions to them. And so we can compare the responses. There was, I thought there was a lot in their responses that 
overlapped and were united, but also a few differences as well. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, which is what we wanted. I want. I didn't want to showcase just three interviews think the same things we think, because that's boring. <laughs> we are not an echo chamber. <laughs> Could we? What's um, your opinion of some of the similarities and differences between the three interviews and what struck you, I suppose, as a general reflection? Well, I was impressed by the passion of all three interviewees and their commitment to non-human nature. And it was very inspiring to hear these people talk. There were subtle differences, of course. So I, rem I remember listening to Andrews and he was talking about the need for densification and urban consolidation as an alternative to sprawl and building on greenfield sites. And that's a very important point. That is something we need to look at. The only thing I would add to that is that under the current growth-based system, there is no end point to densification. We have an economic system that's increasingly addicted to development and growth, so we have to keep building. And the more we, we rest our economic system on building, the harder it is to pull away from that. Under a post-growth model, we can say, well, for in Albany, for example, there's all this land zoned for urban development, and there's large amounts of housing stock in Albany that is fibro, coming to the end of its life in many ways, very expensive to heat and cool, and unsafe in many ways because of the amount of asbestos, and that touches on what we talked about before. So replacing those houses with decent, well-designed new buildings, robust and energy efficient, is, is a good idea. But even that has to have an endpoint. There's only a certain amount that you can densify Albany. It needs to be considered densification. And considered densification can only happen when you're not constantly trying to catch up with growth, whether it be in population or consumption. So, well, I'm writing a briefing note for Sustainable Population Australia on the housing crisis. And one observation is that central Melbourne already has densities in its apartments that exceed that of New York and Hong Kong. And yet that hasn't really put a dent to the outer suburbs of Melbourne that continue to sprawl outwards. No. So I think one of the problems is that one's not really a solution to other in the long term if the end goal is to grow infinitely on a finite planet. Oh yeah, under a growth-based system, the sprawl versus densification is a false dilemma. We end up getting both. And the irony is, a lot of those high-density buildings in Melbourne are very poorly built, so not only are we losing a lot of embodied carbon through demolishing robust buildings, we're often replacing them with buildings that are less robust than the buildings that were pulled down in the first place. There's irony for you. A bitter, bitter, ironic pill to swallow. Wasn't it you who made the joke that you said Spider-Man would be too scared to fight crime in Melbourne due to the standard of the buildings? Yes, yes. Wouldn't be Dr Octopus that finally best Spider-Man? No. It would be the shitty cladding. It yes. would be the shitty cladding, yeah, that's right. <laughs> what we'll do now is we'll hear from the three guests in turn and then when we come back for the outro, um, I'd like to hear your uh, views on some of the 
questions that I asked all three guests. Sounds good. See you soon. Welcome back to PGAP. I am sitting here with Annabelle Pauly, a key member of the Friends of the Yakamaya Forest Budja. Welcome, Annabelle. I met you at a permaculture festival in October. So um, how did you find the permaculture festival? Um, very rewarding, actually. Um, the speakers there, um, you know, basically organic and uh, holistic farming, uh, gave me a few ideas to try out on my own organic farm actually so yeah very worthwhile and uh, the people that those sort of festivals attract are certainly very interesting to talk to and you know the like-minded people and came away feeling much better about the world <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, quite a bit of serendipity here because a couple of episodes ago interviewed Murray Gom from Orange Tractor, who uses a lot of the regenerative uh, principles and was also at the Permafest. And um, you also have uh, a setup uh, in the Great Southern. Would you like to talk a little bit more yeah. about that? <clears throat> I've got a 160-acre organic farm in Broomhill in the upper part of the Great Southern. I mainly farm because I farm it from a distance at the moment, uh, mainly doing sheep for wool production and uh, some cropping for um, sheep fodder, but also um, there are a lot of uh, greening of that area and revegetating. Um, for instance, just this winter just gone, I planted 1,700 trees and shrubs um, individually by hand using my hand planter to get a more specific planting for biodiversity. Um, to provide you know habitat for birds and um, local species and uh, yeah just getting the place more vegetated than it has been in the past because it was part of a, a larger farm which was bought by a developer and split up into the individual paddocks um, in individual lots and so yeah I've been splitting it up into smaller paddocks revegetating corridors to link up existing remnant vegetation that's in neighbouring properties and uh, within my own property as well, so yeah. Well, thank you for being part of the solution and not part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a little bit of an overview of the Friends of uh, Yakamai Forest Budja um, and how you became a key member. Friends of Yakamai Forest Budja started in May of 2022 and it was... Um, in response to an agenda item that the local city of Albany had on its committee to allow a developer to cut 17 metre wide strip, which equated to 4,500 square metres into the city's part, the city of Albany owned part of the Yakamai Forest to enable the next door developer to put in housing lots. Um, and he would have to demolish, you know, destroy a whole heap of forest to do that. Um, but they allowed him to cut into what is essentially ratepayer forest um, to help him put more lots on his land and meet his bushfire requirements, which is actually against state planning policy 3.7 in Western Australia, which states that a developer um, must meet his bushfire requirements within the boundaries of his own subdivision site. And so I previously worked for the city of Albany and uh, worked new from the reserve staff 
that um, that forest was earmarked for housing in the local structure plan. And when I saw that agenda item, um, that fired me up and um, I put out a whole heap of flyers in the Akamai community. And amazingly, so many people um, signed an initial petition. Um, I didn't realise that forest was so cherished um, by the local people. They Families in there walk their dogs and their kids ride their bikes in there along the fire tracks. Um, people go bird watching in there. They take photos of all the lovely wildflowers. Because um, this forest, it's, it's the remnant forest in Yakamaya. And the biodiversity is amazing. Um, it's in a very good to excellent condition, the forest. It's got um, understory, midstory, and then you've got your very mature Mary, Jarrah and she oak trees that provide, you know, the canopy. It's home to critically endangered western ringtail possums and the numbers that we've been spotting, I know you didn't see any, but uh, <laughs> they are spotted, there. Yes. Yeah, we spotted much higher numbers in regular possum spotting, so and we know that there are a high density of those critically endangered possums in that forest. And also endangered and vulnerable species of black cockatoo also use it for food. And those mature Mary and she oak trees provide hollows that they can breed in and nest in. So, um, yeah, that we, we, we cranked up pretty quickly when we knew that it was under threat. And uh, that's when so many people have come on board since. Um, it's been amazing, both for local Yakamai people and in the wider Albany community, because... They, the local people not only use it for passive recreation and to just get into beautiful forests to, you know, improve their health and well-being, but people from the other suburbs in Albany travel specifically to that Yakamai forest to do the same. So the value um, with which the local Albany people hold that forest is huge. And I think that's been hugely underestimated by the council. So, yeah, we've been running a campaign since May of this year. So it sounds like there's quite significant cultural and environmental significance. To our knowledge, there are no specific um, cultural, Aboriginal cultural sites on there. Obviously, before Albany was set, settled 200 years ago, um, the Aboriginal people will have roamed through there and um, hunted and, and uh, you know, used it for shelter and the like. Um, we do have um, some local Manang Noongar elders in our group who are very concerned about that forest being destroyed for housing. It's not just the cultural side of things, obviously. You've got the environmental things with the um, pressing emergency with climate change now. And, and the Aboriginal people know that as well. They embrace that. And so we've got them on board and they want to save it. So... Yeah, there are no specific sites on there, but um, we've certainly got the backing of the local Manangnunga elders and community to save it. It does sound like, from what you're saying, this is a campaign that, that is um, successfully bringing people together from across the political spectrum. It's not just gronies, <laughs> no. but also concerned residents who yeah. also get an intrinsic personal value. Yes, I mean a lot of the existing houses in the Yakamai suburb were previously forest and you know we've had criticism that oh why are people who are living there you know and, and having houses on place on the place where they used to be more forest well we know better now and mm. we've got this pressing 
climate emergency and so we shouldn't keep doing what we've done in the past because we now know it's wrong um, you know replacing carbon absorbing high density high biodiversity forest with housing so you've got your concrete your tin your bricks they're all heating the planet and then you've got the added thing where you've stopped you've taken away the carbon absorbing forest and you're placing it replacing it with hugely carbon emitting housing so the current and planned development mm. will that see a complete and utter decimation of the forest to replace it with um yet more classic Albany suburban sprawl <laughs> yes it's not like it's high density housing it's it's mm. housing for the upper middle class to rich like people because it's bigger blocks yeah the the top one third portion is earmarked for housing in the local structure plan um, but the Friends of Yakima Forest have been lobbying the council um, because it is council-owned land, we have a say in it. And so um, the local planning scheme, which is the statutory document, which the structure plans sit under, and then you've got your local planning strategy, which sits above the scheme. So you've got your strategy. The current Albany planning, uh, local planning strategy has many, many references to not clearing for urban development and reducing the sprawl. And so the current scheme um, is 2010, so they want to upgrade that scheme and come, make it come in line with the strategy which was adopted in 2019. And so we put a submission on in for the Friends of Yakima Forest to rezone all of the forest and the whole of the lot actually, because it goes from forest down to she-oak woodland um, and then down at the bottom of the hill and the, this long thin lot where the forest is at the top of the hill. Down the bottom you've got the Yakimai Creek and there are a lot of um, invasive weeds down there in terms of Sydney Golden Wattle and Gorse Weed. But we want the whole lot rezoned into a reserve. Um, we've also got the added threat of a key distributor road going from the CBD to the north part of Albany where this is the next area that's going to be developed north of Yakimai. And so they want a key distributor road to go right up through the lot. So we're not only going to, we want that whole land put into a reserve, we want to look at them either not putting that road through the lot or bringing it further south where all the weeds are. So you take out all the weedy area and you have the road going up through the weedy area um, rather than it's currently proposed to go higher up the lot and actually take out some of the, the better quality forest because the, by far the best quality vegetation on that whole City of Albany lot is the laterite forest in the top one-third portion. So um, it's under threat from housing and it's under threat from road construction, putting in submissions to try and change that into a reserve and get that road either not put through the lot or have a lesser impact on the vegetation on that lot. It is a good fight that you're fighting, but I do have to say that it's not the only <laughs> example of this kind of thing happening. Yeah. There are examples of protecting local area from the big bad developers yeah. pretty much all across the globe. Mm. So I'm interested in asking everyone in this special Talking Heads episode of, of PGAP um, your personal views around the broader issues of a growth-based developer-led economy and where you see the role of grassroots 
action groups, so the smaller scale, um, you know, saving local areas, working alongside the bigger story um, of system change activism. This incessant jobs, growth and development juggernaut that all levels of government and developers and big business, corporate, even smaller business are on, is just not sustainable. Um, we can't keep going on like this. I mean, we are degrading our environment all across the world and the environment sustains life. You know, we need clean air to breathe. Um, we need a decent planet and a healthy planet to live on. And I don't know where this all developed. I mean, it's a greed for money. That, that's essentially what it is. Um, but we have to stop, you know, two, three hundred years ago, before industrial, um, the revolution, industrialization, um, people lived simply. They were content with what they had. Um, but we've got this frenzy now of, you've got to have the biggest houses and therefore you have a huge mortgage. Therefore, mum and dad have got to go out and work to sustain the mortgage and sustain the lifestyle. That Kids have got to have all these new, you know, the best toys. They've got to have the best phones, the best video games. They've got to go and do this, do that. And it's just crazy. It's just a frenzy that it's got to stop. We could actually, it's got to be a world thing. We have to turn the whole thing around and say, no, we are not going to develop any further. The whole world is going to accept a lesser standard of living, make do with what you've got for longer, and just settle into a less damaging, more sustainable equilibrium that we can move forward and allow to have a reasonable quality of life because you know two three hundred years ago they didn't have all the technology all these toys and they were content there are numerous studies to say that poor people in third world countries are more content and happier than we are in the developed world um, and they make do with far less um, they don't have the mental health problems, you know, even though they're quite poor. Um, they're rich in spirit, I guess, and in their inner souls. And I think we've, we've lost that. And, um, yeah, we have to turn, we've got to reduce our world population, which will then reduce the demand for things, which will then reduce the impact on our environment and allow us to just stabilise and tick along at a nice pace. We don't have to go at this crazy jobs, growth and juggernaut pace because the first thing is less population because that creates the demand for everything. You're right at home saying that on this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad people aren't going to hit the stop button. <laughs> and I know, look, it, it's hard to get your head around because we're so conditioned now to want more, 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 more. Everything just clambering at us. It's just awful. We don't need, we don't need all that, you know. We can be happy. I mean, I've got a 27-year-old ute. She works perfectly fine. And I keep her service regularly. That's all you need, you know. I've had one child in my life. He's 19 now. Um, and that was a conscious decision um, to have one child to minimise my impact on the planet. 
I, I will say proudly that I used cloth nappies for the whole of his childhood. I even went on a trip to England when he was uh, eight months old and I used cloth nappies all the way over there and cloth nappies all the way back. So, you know, it can be done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just, we're just conditioned all wrong. And, and also, you know, with goods these days are not produced to the quality that they used to be because they're produced not to last very long so that you're going to want to go out and buy more. And where do they end up? Landfill. That, in turn, you can line your landfills all you like, but they're still going to be leaching. And that, in turn, impacts the environment, you know. So everything we do impacts our environment, and we rely on that to live. So we've got to look after it. And we've got to go back to a more simplified way of living. I didn't work when I had a child when I was younger. chose not to work. And I think there's also this problem here. I loved being a mum and staying at home. I worked beforehand, and then when he went to school full-time, I went back to work. But there's so much pressure, and because people have got such big mortgages, they have the kids, and so the mum has to go back out to work. You put your kids in childcare, and, you know, you're not spending that quality time with your kids. And there are so many things that we need to, to get back to and to value and to cherish to have a less of an impact on the world and actually have better quality of life. One of the recent articles that I wrote, it was... Like saying, well, before, you know, we can talk about technological revolutions and stuff like that, we need to stop the scale of what we're doing at the moment. You know, we've caused damage on the scale that we've done now. Can we at least not add to the problem by, you know, just the last new development, just this one development, um, that kind of piecemeal creep that's happening at such an exponential Pace interested in um, your personal um, view. You know, ob- obviously we can't have local community groups protecting pockets from overdevelopment without the larger system because it's you know can end up just putting out spot fires. But also the reverse is problematic if you're just thinking of the big picture. Yeah. Um, you're not protecting what's close and treasured to you. So just your personal views of um, how, you know, activism of all scales can be important. Oh, absolutely, you know, because um, essentially you've got developers, big business and all levels of government running the system and so we need to have more influence and the way we can have more influence in that is to keep an eye on what your council's doing for a start Um and also the need for activist groups to put up their own candidates so that we have more environmentally minded um, members of local councils. They tend to be the business people. Uh, in rural areas, there are lots of farmers who are looking out for their own interests on the local council, you know. And so we've got to have more of those activist people representing environmentally conscious members of the community on both local government and I was very disappointed at state government, the last state government election in Western Australia, that we only had one Greens candidate that got into Parliament. Um, And it was good that Labour got in, but now Labour's starting to act like um, the capitalist sort of, you know, coalition side of things. So, you know, whilst they are doing some good um, to the environment, they're still allowing lots of um, mining development to happen, which is uh, to detriment of the environment. But yeah, we have to get more environmental candidates, both at a 
national, state and a local government level because that's the only way decisions are going to be made that will benefit the environment instead of keep destroying it. We've already touched on population, but I think it's just worth uh, to raise the fact that developers like to play the card that, oh, we've got a growing population, so they mm. need to be housed somewhere. Mm. They don't mention that they lobbied <laughs> mm. the government for economic migration at the expense of humanitarian refugee migration. Yes. But that's neither here nor yeah. there when they're, mm. um, they're playing the victim card yeah, <laughs> that's right. against the NIMBY groups. Um, and look, the cr criticism not only from developers, but also from well-meaning people from the ABC and blah, 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 <laughs> that NIMBY can, can often be applied along the lines of if we don't grow your area, um, are you happy for everywhere else except your area to be developed instead? And so I was just wondering, I know the friends of Yakimaya have, haven't been around for long, but I was just wondering, have you had any personal experience of this tension um, and do you have any personal opinions regarding well yes obviously there's tension between this developer that wants to take out he's got this last remaining um, privately owned lot um, of about oh, 2.6 hectares that's going to be destroyed and it's all prime all of his lot is prime um, laterite forest so there is tension there, and he's just put in subdivision application to the state's um, WA Planning Commission, and we're lobbying um, that now to A, stop that section being put into our forest to help him make more money out of his. But um, look, developers saying, oh, are you happy for other areas to develop when you're not? Well, the reason why people live in Albany and a lot of these small areas is because they don't have a lot of housing and this they're keeping that i mean albany is still essentially a big country town in my view in a lot of ways so people want that so a lot of people in albany don't want that growth they just don't want it and a lot of other areas don't either and if we actually reduce the population we're not going to have that demand for extra housing and also michael i believe in the 2021 census um albany was singled out as being quite um, a high percentage of housing with only one or two people living in it. You know, big bedroom, maybe four two-bedroom housing. So we're not living efficiently in the housing that we've got. And also, it's only the state government that requires 10% of any of their housing developments to be social housing. And the city of Albany's housing strategy says that they want more high density and, and a variety of different housing um, to make better use of the land that we've got already earmarked for housing. Well, I don't see any of that strategy in the city of Albany actually forcing that onto developers. So I think private developers, they've also got to have legislation now that says that it's not only state government housing that has to be, and I think we need more than 10% social housing, but um, private developers having that stipulation put on them by law so that they can't get away with it, and also that every single development from now on is high density because there's a finite area of land that can be developed into the future if we're not to keep 
degrading our environment. So let's make better use of what we've got. And Albany also has this you know, big area where you've got this huge four or five bedroom, two bathroom house on a huge area of acreage. Um, such an inefficient use of land. And then going on from that, you know, um, if they're going to keep developing, then they're going to need to eat into agricultural land. And if we're going to have more population, how are we going to feed them? You know, we're taking away the very land that produces the food to feed the extra people, but then we won't have that extra land. And that then creates this huge pressure on farmers, which has been going on for quite some time now, to maximise the amount of crop that you get from each hectare of land, got to maximise our yields. And there's more and more pressure to get more and more yield out of the same amount of land. So we're sticking more and more artificial fertiliser in there. Pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, all going into our environment. So it's an absolute crazy, heaving mess. <laughs> it really is. And I don't know how Australia gets away with saying it's, a, it's got this clean, green agricultural image because I'm in the agricultural industry. I have um, been on a, a chemical farm with my ex-husband. I farm organically now. I know both sides of the story. And I know how degrading and how, how much pesticide and everything else we use on our crops. And I don't know how we get away with saying we've got this clean, green Australian agricultural image. It's, uh, yeah, look, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like when they say, oh, Tasmania, it's a wilderness mm. isle, and every time I go, it just seems to be everything's logged. So, mm, yeah. Absolutely. So sometimes we get this image, you know, it's, know. Just, it's not true. It's mm. just to cover up. That's the bad stuff. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so you think it's all nice and rosy. Well, thank you so much, Annabelle, for uh, coming over and uh, sharing your thoughts. And um, all the best for the friends of Yakamaya. I got to know a few people involved now. And um, you're all amazing people. I'll be supporting the fight and doing yeah. some submissions. Otherwise, for the longer term and ho ho hopefully it's not a longer term battle hopefully you win yeah. this very soon um, but how can people help and support the cause yeah look we we're keeping our cars close to our chest but um can i encourage um listeners to um get onto our facebook page friends of yakima forest and you can contact us there um and we'll be posting um information on there at various stages over however long it takes um, to let people know how they can help um, stop that forest being destroyed but certainly at the moment with our um, submissions to the local planning scheme number two to get that whole um, city of Albany block including the forest section at the top rezone to reserve is our most pressing need at the moment because if we can get that rezone to reserve um, we've saved that forest um, and we've actually recommended that it be a class uh, a class reserve which would be um, ceded to the crown of WA and then they turn it into a reserve a class A reserve and then seed it back to the city of Albany for ongoing management um, whether we get that or not but it's certainly got to be we won't accept anything less than some sort of reserve classification that will protect it from development forever Mm. because future generations are going to live in Yakamaya and they're going to want to enjoy it and passively recreate in that beautiful forest 
um, for as long as this world survives. <laughs> <laughs> you heard her, go help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please. And do it in your local area as well. Mm. Keep an eye out because your council, keep an eye on their websites um, because they have to, and the local papers, they have to advertise in the local papers that they're going to be reviewing their local planning scheme. And the local planning scheme and then the strategy that sits above it, when you see that being advertised, get in there and scrutinise it heavily because especially this, the scheme, that's the statutory document which is actually ratified by the State Planning Authority, the Planning Commission. So once that's in place, that gives them, that's their benchmark then, that's what they have to carry out, that scheme. So they'll be developing the area, whatever the scheme says will be done in the area. So if you can have input into the scheme, and they tend to be around for about you know a decade, so it's really important that you get in there, and it's a statutory document, so they need to abide by it. Um, if you can get your viewpoint and your local remnant vegetation, bushland, anything that's remnant, that's old growth or whatever, if you can get that made into a reserve in your local planning scheme, that will safeguard it, and I encourage you to do that because we have to stop this senseless destruction of our beautiful vegetation. Welcome back to our PGAP overdevelopment in WA special. <laughs> I'm here speaking with uh, Chris Poulton. How are you, Chris? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's been lovely having you show me around your place on Baker's Hill. Oh, thanks for visiting us. It's uh, perfect weather for it and it's going to be rainy tomorrow, I think. Give us a little bit of a summary of how we met and uh, what groups you're involved in. Sure. We actually met at the Rethink Eastlink group, which I'm a member of, and it was very good having you there the other night. Um, so the reason that we're meeting in Bakers Hill today is because my family has a heritage listed property which was established in 1884 by Edward Keane. So Keane was the Lord Mayor of Perth. He built the town hall in Fremantle and built over 800 kilometres of railway line around Western Australia. So the property that we're standing or sitting on now was the first place that he took up land when he was working on the railway line. Because it's got such a rich history here, I really appreciated the tour. Firstly, just uh, give me a bit of a summary of what saved uh, Perth Hills and Rethink Eastlink, what they're about and what they're trying to stop right now. Sure. Back in the 80s, there were some complaints from the Mundaring residents living along Great Eastern Highway. They weren't happy with the, with the trucks, essentially. Um, so the Mundaring Shire came up with this proposal to build a new road that looped around and avoided the Mundaring town centre. And they had a couple of options that ran south of the town and one that ran north of the town. Um, that pretty much has been untouched uh, since then, up until about two years ago, um, where main roads suddenly started pushing very hard to act upon this old solution to an old 
old problem. Um, and that is to build a whole new highway that would connect from Row. Row. I think. Uh, yeah. Up to J Road and then cut across from Gijigan up down to Wurralu and then run parallel with Great Eastern Highway, only a couple of you know, only a few metres away from it essentially. Um, it'll take out a big section of the Kep track, uh, which is also overlapped with the Golden Pipeline Heritage Trail, uh, and then it will impose on the on Keynes Heritage listed property, which is on the state register, uh, and then connect back up with Great Eastern Highway uh, out near Clackline. It's a vast area. When I came to the meeting, I was surprised, firstly, that the meeting was in Gijiganup and there were people all the way from Middle Swan. And, you know, I was driving up all the way from Boyer mm. in order to go to a community, meet community <laughs> meeting, almost like a hundred kilometres of... It's a, it's a 80 kilometre stretch of a whole new road that runs diagonally from 2J Road to um, Great Eastern Highway, uh, you know, which essentially run parallel to each other all the way to Northern. Yeah. So it's a it's a big area, and you know, there's we've got water catchment areas and things through the hills, which is probably one of the big reasons why it isn't as heavily developed as it is as as they want it to be. Mm. But there catching up with a lost time well. <laughs> perhaps it'd be a good opportunity to give us a um, audible tour of you know, your place here up in Baker's Hill and some of its history and for any visitors uh, that come uh, come here what some of the cultural and uh, environmental legacy in 1884 the railway line was built from Mount Helena through to Clackline and the property runs parallel with that right along the, the old cap track. So on the property we've got the old original winery building. Uh, there's the remnants of Keene's old homestead. So you can still see the old uh, stone steps that led up to it. Uh, it was cutting edge for its day so it had an uh, internal septic system which mm. was all brick lined and underneath would have been underneath the floorboards, uh, and you've still got the old um, the old fire place at the back, and just next to that now we've got the Morton Bay fig trees. So Keen was quite famous for planting lots of uh, Morton Bay figs around Adelaide and around uh, Perth as well. So any Keen Street that you come across probably has a fig tree on it somewhere, <laughs> or did at some stage. Uh, so they're about 147 years old now. You gave me a tour of the fig trees and it's absolutely incredible, such a vast canopy and twisting oh, it's, branches. It, it's a different different little world underneath those trees. And what was it like growing up here and, um, and, and, and in this area of the kind of between... Is it like a between area of the On hills the, and wheat belt? Or? Yeah, it's it's sort of the best of both both worlds. Not that I want to promote the area for people to move <laughs> on. <off. laughs> it's great, but stay away. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome for a visit. So it was it was great. We used to get bits of shade cloth and climb up the fig trees and stretch that out to make hammocks and we would sleep two stories above the ground. Uh, we would run a muck in the in the creek. So yeah, it was. A great childhood 
running around and, you know, getting in touch with nature. So how will the proposed developments uh, affect here personally? For, for us personally, it would, it would kill the property. So the, it's such a beautiful place that it seems a shame to reallocate an entire new section to a road when they've already got the existing road of Great Eastern Highway. Um, so because it's a, our farm is you know quite a long block and it runs along the parallel to the cap track, so having another road that will take up half of that, it's going to make the rest of it unused unusable because who's going to want to come and get married right next to a highway road buffs maybe (laughs) (laughs) car buffs they tried building those noise barriers when they redid the great northern highway up to up from tonkin to great northern highway and the subdivisions down around whiteman park have had a lot of problems with those because they just don't work if they tried doing decent buffers and verge by the time they start putting in a a decent verge it'll you know it'll be on out the doorstep of our house yeah and then you've got to start thinking about the impacts that it'll have on the old uh fig trees because they'll Mm. they'll want to they'll want to dig down to some extent and the water table's only a meter or two below the ground Mm. And if they start interfering with the aquifers that those trees rely on, then they'll kill them. And how do you see this affecting uh, affecting the whole 80-kilometre stretch? Well, it'll completely change the atmosphere and the lifestyle of the communities out this way. So we've got the cap track, which is the old railway line that Keane built. They want to take out a large section of that to, to build this road, and that's only a couple of metres away from the original Great Eastern Highway. Um, the original proposal that they're basing the East Link on, which is the Orange Route, actually finished in the Mundaring Shire because it was a Mundaring Shire solution to a Mundaring Shire problem. Mm. And there's no benefit to the Wheatbelt communities and the three towns that it's going to cut through um, to have to have this new whole new road built. What is the discrepancy between um, the perceived reality and natural reality of yes, so relations? so the per, the perceived reality of the project is seems to be that because they're main roads and it's their job to provide that service that they're giving us the best possible result. The fact that they haven't looked at this project for 20 years, the motives behind this project don't seem to be the reasons they wanted to build it originally. So it's no longer a solution for the trucks going through Mundaring. And the technology and engineering um, that we've got nowadays. I mean, there's some brilliant examples in the Blue Mountains where they've sunk the the road for for the flow through traffic, and you just need to have little little bridges and ring roads around the top. I mean, they could build a tunnel uh, like they did in Adelaide Hill 
for Greenmount if they wanted to, but they would rather sacrifice people's houses, their livelihoods, and build a whole new road rather than update the ones that they've neglected for 20 years. And this is coming from a state government who brags about how much money they make. Yes. Well, but just not enough for health <laughs> no, education. I think they decreased the, the, the health budget over the pandemic, didn't they? One of the reasons, I think, what someone from the AMA said that um, they didn't open the borders for as long as they did to the rest of the state because they knew their overburdened hospitals wouldn't cope. Wouldn't cope <laughs> with. <laughs> yeah, we've we've got we've got three people in ICU now. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. enough. No more. So so one of the strategies that that main roads carry out is uh, offsets. So they're quite happy to bulldoze over you know our native animals and wildlife and they don't even have to replace that they can just allocate a section of bush that's already inhabited by its own little community of our wildlife and say that oh we'll we'll put put that down as an as an allocated offset to what we've just cleared <laughs> main roads have been given so much power that there's Nobody to hold them culpable. Mm. And they essentially write their own rules. Mm. The project isn't a community-focused project. They're not interested in the best op- the best options for the locals who live through the five towns that are getting dissected by this road. They're essentially building it for the Eastern States freight, so they say. Right. But, you know, obviously we know that it's... Um, urban sprawl by stealth, really. Mm. But if they focused on improving the roads for the public, so the section of Great Eastern Highway between the lakes and and Clackline has pretty much been neglected for the last 20 years. So they've built a four-lane highway, a a good four-lane highway um, all the way up to the lakes, and then it goes back to two lanes. Now, they've argued that, oh, these sections on Great Eastern Highway where there's a couple of big bends and there's been lots of lots of accidents and people have died over the last 20 years, mainly because they haven't bothered to invest money in upgrading it. Um, they've recently redone two sections of them and they haven't taken out the big bends and they haven't increased it to, to two lanes. So they've left it as one lane and just resurfaced it, shifted the road a bit to take some of the bend out. But essentially, essentially they've just upgraded it. The reason why they've only spent money on these small sections and left all the dangerous areas alone is because it falls under bits that they can use for this new project if it gets the go-ahead. Right. Whereas if they focused on how the local traffic moves... Um, so the entrances and exits on Great Eastern Highway, particularly in the Wheat Belt, where it hasn't been so developed mm. um, compared to Mundaring, there's lots of entrances and exits that local traffic use that they could block off from Great Eastern Highway and consolidate into you know half a dozen areas across the whole whole section, um, and. But that would mean investing in the local roads and the local traffic conditions. 
and that would make it safer for our community and our local communities, it would also achieve the goals that they say they're trying to, <laughs> trying that this road that this road's going to, which is you know making it safer for traffic and and trucks, the trucks that they're building this new road proposal for account for less than one percent of the traffic that actually use Great Eastern Highway, so it's probably going to be at least three billion dollars by the time they've finished all their planning, which they haven't even completed yet. And they're doing it for less than 1% of the traffic that actually use the roads. So is this all for the singular pursuit of pure evil and corruption? <laughs> <laughs> so they've employed the same company that does the assessment on how feasible the road is as the company that's going to be contracted to build it. Oh, what a coincidence. I know, right? Mm. Funny, though. It seems like they've already sussed out ways of siphoning government money out into, into private enterprises. Interesting fact, the old pipeline that CY O'Connor built um, has started to degrade and they've had to go through and fix uh, a lot of sections of it. And last year I remember driving back and just on the other side of Northern there was a hole in the pipeline and there was this big fountain of water arching over the road and then a bit further down there was another one and they had their, you know, guys blocking the road off to you know so they can shut it down and fix these these holes speaking to people on the from the water court they're actually moving away from using these contractors and bringing all their um, staff back in house that you know construct their big water tanks and do the maintenance because it gives them better control and better quality of, of the jobs that are done so, sorry, I just okay. <laughs> I was just a little bit shocked um, and dumbfounded. Yeah. Well, it it's, it seems silly that that Main Roads isn't following the same sort of example that they're mm. contracting all these all these different companies to do patchwork mm. uh, on you know in a lot of cases on relatively new sections of road and they just don't stand up. They have to get resurfaced every year, mm. Mm. which means they're they're wasting a lot of money. And precious resources. Yeah, and, and precious resources, and it's right, it's what we're paying for. And uh, we're entering a realm where it's hard to build houses now because of all the resource shortages. And the red tape. <laughs> Don't forget the red tape. And just, you know, looking kind of broader still, it seems incredible in a time when there are resource shortages, in a time of climate change, when... People are encouraged to get off the roads when we're having peak oil. Is this a time where we want more roads to be doing more driving? <laughs> well, sure. If you're if you're looking into the 1900s and that's where you're pulling all your all your plans and development ideas from, then then you'd probably argue that yeah, why why not build another road? I mean, the Keane actually did a good job of setting up a rail network around Western Australia, and most of that's been shut down and, and lost now there was a paper from america that i read and i think they said road freight was about nine times more expensive than than rail yeah wow which seems counterintuitive yeah. at first and so even if even if you go okay well let's do hydrogen powered trucks or or solar powered trucks for example 
it's still going to be nine times more expensive because you can implement those same technologies onto a train and a rail system probably more effectively because you can have all the uh, solar stations set up along the Nullarbor right next to the railway line. The southwestern Australian environment is not renowned for its robustness. Well, it's robust in terms of that it can fulfil very kind of stringent ecological niches and poor soils, but it doesn't really like being paved over. (laughs) Well, that's one of the arguments that I remember from uni was that the southwest is a biodiversity hotspot for a couple of reasons. One is the unique and complex uh, ecosystems. So everything is very diverse because, you know, there's lots of different little ecosystems out there. And another reason is because so much of it has been cleared and and paved over. So Perth used to be a wetland back in its day. It's hard to imagine Perth being a a swampland back in the day and Mm. they've done an incredible but incredibly depressing job of turning it into (laughs) something completely different. In the research that I've done uh, on Keene, I found some pictures of Midland before Midland was was really built. And do you know where the Junction Ice Creamery is? Yeah, yeah. So there's an old picture Mm. from around that area and it's just kangaroo grass and scrappy field grassland areas. Quite a different (laughs) different story now. Big change from like a one kilometre stretch of many kilometres stretch of supermarket and shopping mall and interchanges mm. and I know when I'm <laughs> going to the hills there's that bit when you enter Midland and Midvale uh, along the roads and the road highway it's just like it'll be over soon it'll be over <laughs> soon and now they're wanting to build more. Yeah. One, of the, one of the problems that I've seen talking to the local communities about this project is the lack of information that's out there so there's no incentive for main roads to give everyone both sides of the story and make it aware to, to as many people as possible because it's just going to make more problems for them. Um, so talking to a lot of the old locals, they've heard of the Orange Route, which is what the East Link is loosely based on. And their view is that this road's never going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. You know, mm. they talk, talked about it 20 years ago and they didn't do anything, so they're never going to. That's one assumption that I've, I've noticed. Um, then there's a lot of people that have moved up this way that have no idea about it. So they don't, they don't even know that this, that this big freeway is coming. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got people that have heard about it, but they've got so much else going on in their life that they, they can't afford to spend the time looking into it. Um, and so a lot of people don't realise the scale of it and that it is actually going to impact them, even if they live 10Ks um, north or south of it. The other thing that's in, in incredible, just broadening the scale out further, this stretch of road proposal isn't the only road proposal uh, that's been recent in WA, in Australia. With big problems. (laughs) Or in the world. So often people fighting for local issues are 
branded NIMBYs and mm. stuff like that and with the idea that you have to have development. But it's also a bit of a same old story that road developments presuppose future property development and a culture of GDP growth via the construction mm. sector and via property speculation of property developers and I'm just going to say my own opinions here whining and dining each of the major parties that we happen to vote in on mass for reasons beyond me so the question is is what are your opinions of a broader systemic issue and where do you see local action and system change coexisting I think what you're talking about Spud came up with a good word which is uh what was it subdivision by stealth yeah they build the road out to provide access and then the sub these big companies that you know buy up land in bulk and and subdivide it and build the quarter acre blocks where Mm. the rooftops are just about touching and you can see that when you go down to to bullsbrook now Mm. so just off of the the old bullsbrook road there's areas that were great pastoral land and now it's roof and house roof and house and there's only you know half a meter between the two you could jump from rooftop to rooftop yes and that's why perth is now the light is it the longest city in the world well i remember even before i um left perth to a stint in melbourne like it was 100 kilometers from two rocks to Mandurah. Mm. They were supposed to be controlling Perth's urban sprawl and I haven't seen anything to do, anything to show that they've actually acted upon that. Well, if this is controlled, I'd hate to see it controlled. <laughs> it's, out of control. no. it's, not, it's not good. We need to be looking into the 22nd century and, you know, a lot of people don't want or don't don't need to travel all the way down to Perth and back every day to to go to work anymore. A lot Mm. of people can work from home. That's only going to improve with technologies. On this podcast, we're not afraid to ask difficult questions, and that includes you know the questions on on endless growth. And you can't talk about endless growth and town planning um, without talking about population growth at some stage. And one of the reasons of that is that is a justification for development and diminishing the voice of so-called NIMBYs. Um, so, so it's a bit of an existential question, like if you don't talk about population growth, but if you want to preserve your local area, um, does that mean that you have to watch everywhere else grow indefinitely, but your <laughs> patch gets preserved forever? Well, unfortunately, I think I think we've allowed our our country and our politicians to be heavily influenced by these big businesses that that come in and give them funding and our economy has turned into one that only grows as long as the population keeps growing so true yeah it reminds me of one of my old uni lecturers and he gave this great presentation and touched on all the environmental problems and you know went into fossil fuels and pollution and everything and just sort of skirted around the fact that global population growth is clearly 
the problem with all of this currently because we've our technology is only at a point where we can sustain so many people and we still use so many resources and until we get to the point in Star Trek where they have warp, tra- warp travel mm. and have those little machines, the replicator machines that make anything that they need. The matter generators. Yes, the yeah, matter generators. Yeah. Un- until we reach that point, then we're still going to be you know, using lots of resources and, and producing lots of, um, lots of rubbish and waste. Mm. So I guess from my own perspective, it is difficult to tackle local issues without kind of some awareness of some mm. of the broader implications and what leads to all these pockets of overdevelopment and the creeping normalcy over time. Yeah, I think I think the shires should definitely be focusing on quality over quantity, especially with infrastructure and planning. Midlands just about lost their opportunity to become the rail hub of of the escarpment, really. Um, so they had that big plot of land around the old Midland, where the Midland Railway Consortium was when Keane was involved. And trying to park properly down near the new Bunnings in that little section is, is already a nightmare, and it's only a couple of years old. They could have developed the railway station, invested in a rail network that you know, runs to the airport. They could have had bullet trains that reach out as far as Northern York 2J and then you wouldn't need to build half a dozen new freeways everywhere. Exactly. It's incredible that so much of our public transport infrastructure has diminished, like even to travel interstate. Yeah, the, yeah. I, you know, the, the underground in London is... An amazing transport network. Mm. Uh, you know, Melbourne and Sydney have pretty good trains as well. I mean, they've got trains that go up to the Blue Mountains because, and they've got all the old railway lines that were built around the same time that ours were, but they haven't. They managed to hold on to a lot of theirs, whereas we've lost most of ours. Well, I think Perth had a tram network at one stage, didn't it? Did it? I think some of the old photos of St George's Terrace had trams running through it. And oh, then... is that why they brought in the cat buses? <laughs> Such a new innovation that they never had at any point. Yeah, yeah. Um, even the Fremantle line, I think, um, um, when Charlie O'Court went, oh, we're pulling this up for Western Australians. And yeah. yeah, and then there was a bit... So you've got to have local action because if there wasn't local action, we wouldn't have a Fremantle train line anymore and Stirling Highway would be even more of a, a bottleneck mm. than it is these days. So speaking of local action, um, for those who live around the northeastern... Perth Hills. So anywhere between Northern York 2J, uh, stretching out along Great Eastern Highway and 2J Road to Midland, essentially. So if for listeners who happen to live along that vast <laughs> stretch, um, what can they do and what is Rethink East Link and Perth Hills Action Group planning? So um, Rethinking East Link is a community-based uh, group and... To be clear, we're not against development and road improvements and innovation. We're against 
poor planning or, or non-existent planning and government essentially acting in ways that are less than transparent. Um, so I would inc strongly encourage anyone who's heard of the Orange Route to look into the Eastlink project and see and, and have a look at the, the scale of the project. If you don't support this project going ahead, um, then you can definitely get in contact with your local members of parliament uh, on the Rethink Eastlink website. There are templates for letters that you can send to state and federal members and as well as local government. So Midland Shire, uh, Mundaring Shire, the East Metropolitan Regional Council um, and also the Northern Shire. If you've got any questions, we have meetings once a month so you can come to, to a Rethink Eastlink meeting. You can, if you know any of us, then you can come and talk to us. Uh, the Save the Perth Hills group, we are engaged with them. Um, so if you want to reach out through them, then, then that's a great starting point. I'll, I'll, come, I'll come down and rant at you again another time. <laughs> come down to Albany and rant any time. I can show you the link road there. It might feel like a, a bit of deja vu. Yeah, mm. I'm sure it will. This is PGAP talking to Chris Poulton. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for coming and visiting. Welcome back to PGAP. And I am speaking to Dr. Andrew St. John the convener for the campaign for a safe and scenic 2J road. Andrew, I was wondering if you could start off by giving us just a brief summary about yourself so we can find out a little bit about you and a little bit about the history of scenic 2J roads as well. Uh, I'm a medical scientist, uh, a PhD scientist who's worked in uh, healthcare all of my life. I'm mostly retired now. I do a little consulting, but as part of retiring, I've moved uh, largely away from Perth to live uh, in the country, in the uh, what's known as the Perth Hills. They're about uh, we're about 80 kilometres northeast of Perth, living in the bush, and having moved here for the last five or six years, have come to appreciate uh, the pristine nature of the bush. Um, and one of the problems we have is that the main roads department of the West Australian government wants to improve uh, the road that runs from Perth to my locality uh, and it's correct to say it needs improving but the problem is they want to clear far more land than we would think we think is ideal and so we're going to lose a lot of uh, mature vegetation including trees that are hundreds of years old when there is an alternative solution, we believe, where the road can be improved, there'll be some clearing, but it won't be on the level as to what they're planning. So our campaign is trying to get the Main Roads Department to rethink uh, their attempts to improve the road. We've had some small wins, some uh, significant trees will be saved, but we still believe there's a lot more clearing is going to happen than we believe is desirable. As someone who has 
grown up around the Darling Scarp area and the Perth Hills myself, um, I can really personally resonate that that this part of the world is very special. Would you like to just tell us a little bit more about the cultural and environmental significance of the area that you are protecting and what is it that makes the 2J area special for you? Part of the significance is that 2J is on the edge of the wheat, the wheat belt, the western edge. So there are farming properties around us intermingled with the bush. But as you go east, of course, you come to the real wheat belt, which was cleared of vegetation and trees and everything very extensively back in, well, for the, almost since colonisation, basically. So we live close to an area where almost one of the most cleared areas of Australia. And so there's very little, um, various numbers are quoted for the remnant vegetation, but it's less than 10%. Some people say it's three, some people say it's five. So while there is a lot of uh, trees and mature vegetation around us, if you go another 10 kilometres to the other side of 2J, then you get into the wheat belt proper where there's this very extensively cleared land. And I think, you know, we realised that wasn't a sensible thing to do uh, 150 whatever years ago to clear all the trees. Uh, and we're trying to live with that. And there's been many farmers are trying to revegetate some of their properties with trees to stop a phenomenon like soft encroachment and so on. But given we've had this huge clearing, to be clearing indiscriminately to make bigger roads seems to be you know, nonsensical in this day and age. So that's the, really the cultural background to this, I believe. A possible future that we don't want for 2J is uh, pretty much just 10 kilometres down the road and we want to avoid that. How has the current development diminished the legacy of your local area and how will future planned development further diminish it if it goes ahead? We're, we're faced with a bigger problem uh, in, the, in the hills area here and throughout the Darling Ranges. There are valuable commodities either to be dug out of the ground and that in our area here, there's clay for bricks, uh, there's sand. And now uh, there's a mining company called Chalice who are exploring for particular minerals like palladium, which are people see as very much fundamental to the sort of decarbonisation of the colony in terms of providing the materials for electric vehicles and batteries and so on. So we have a lot of pressures on that, um, and that's not just here, but I think all through the Darling Scarp. What concerns us here is the main roads say, well, we're going to have lots of mines, therefore we have lots of trucks, therefore we need to build bigger roads. And there's no real strategic planning around this. You know, somebody prospects, somebody starts digging holes, and we're, we can't wait to get the materials out of the ground. And so nothing is protected, really. That's a longer-term issue we face, or, or a medium-term issue that we face. There's no plan for the hills to say, perhaps we will not mine there, we will leave that alone, and we will only mine in certain places. When we dig holes, we have a way that the government says, well, let's just get rid of our rubbish, by tipping it in the holes. So a lot of the vehicles that come up 2J Road are full of rubbish from the city and we're disposing of that locally in, in open pits. So they're all the, the things that we're concerned about, the bigger issues and the longer term issues. Yes, and it's interesting that you posit that there's a bigger issue. Certainly, you know, the East Link Road and the development around the Perth Hills 
isn't the only <laughs> instance globally of you know locals fighting against development you only have to come down to in albany and there are people fighting to protect the yakamaya reserve from overdevelopment and people fight fighting weren't successful for a ring road around the area go up north of the state and they're trying to indigenous communities are trying to protect the uh, Matawara Fitzroy River from overdevelopment. So there is a broader issue here of fights going on all across the world. So what are your personal views around the broader issues of a growth-based developer-led economy? And where do you see the role of grassroots action working alongside the broader system change activism, say around degrowth and post-growth? Well, I think the, the grassroots community is absolutely vital because I think, you know, most governments of the day are completely focused on economic development. And I'm, I'm not saying we don't need economic development. I, you know, I understand that we, we have to figure out how we can continue to live on this planet, planet, build things, but build them obviously in a sustainable way. And I just think at the moment, uh, particularly, dare I say, the state government, we have such a mining culture in this state that when anybody discovers something, we are rushing to dig it out of the ground without thinking fully of the consequences of that. Now, I'm probably giving the government you know, a slightly bad rap here. I'm sure there are people in government thinking about alternatives to this, but I think those alternatives don't have a sufficiently high voice. Now, having said that, somebody quoted to me last week that Mark McGowan said, the chalice mine will not go ahead here locally unless the community wants it. A lot of people in the community are so switched on to the economic growth and the jobs argument that they'll, they'll say yes to a mine without thinking through what the consequences of that. And what we need to be thinking about is a, a more sustainable future that has jobs in, for instance, and this is really neglected in this area, the whole tourist value associated with the Avon Valley and the hills and attracting more people out of the metropolitan area to come and spend some time here. A lot of people just don't know the hills exist almost. You know, I mean, they know it physically exists, but they don't come to visit. So it's about changing the balance of the arguments, if you like, into sort of jobs and, and growth, if you like, but growth in a sustainable way, such as through getting more people to visit the area and so on. The one, I suppose, thorny question, <laughs> one excuse that developers like to play is that the growing population needs to be housed and surfaced somewhere. Although a contentious issue, it is never... One excuse that developers like to play is that the growing population needs to be housed and serviced somewhere. Although a contentious issue, it is nevertheless difficult to avoid for many residence groups where the NIMBY criticism can often be along the lines of, if we don't grow your area, are you happy for everywhere else except you to be developed instead? Have you had much personal experience of this tension and do you have any personal opinions regarding? No, I, no, I agree. That is, that is an issue. and I'm very conscious of uh, having sort of lived in cities all my life uh, and been very critical of NIMBYs and so on. And here I am now in the bush uh, mounting similar arguments. But I think we do, you know, we do need more houses. We haven't built enough of them. But I think there is lots of areas in the city that we could manage at a higher density. And I know that will pose some challenges, but I, I firmly believe that with good architecture and good planning, we could achieve that. And I accept that perhaps some places in the hills 
can be developed in a sustainable way where we do have some more housing. For instance, we do have uh, uh, some areas here up in 2J that are, have got blocks uh, around the edge of the town, and I think they could be expanded. We could afford to have more people living here without destroying the environment. But I think what this takes is uh, a different attitude on the part of government and developers uh, in, the sen- in the sense of instead of continually expanding outwards, we think about raising the density within the existing development envelope. Yes, uh, I, I remember we had a conversation before about the fact that um, the Perth coastline of the metro area extends 120 kilometres. Perhaps is it is there a pressure on the hills to develop because uh, <laughs> developers are finally cottoned on to the fact that um, having a city that extends 200 kilometres up and down the coast, so you're pretty much <laughs> you're pretty much into Geraldton by that stage. No, I agree. I think that's that's their attitude that we've gone up and down the coast, and now we're thinking, well, we can't expand westward, obviously, so let's go east. But I think it's. Uh, I think it's really lazy thinking, and I'm sure we can uh, increase density uh, within the existing envelope. And we've al- we already know that if we keep expanding, we've then non- got to provide transport and uh, facilities, resources, and so on, which becomes very expensive the more extended the metropolitan area becomes. So I, I, I think there, there is some alternatives here that can be explored. You know, we should seriously think whether the hills should be like a green belt, uh, a bit like London has around it. And it's, and it's very controversial in London because the pressure to build there is huge, far greater than here. Uh, but, you know, people are resisting and preserving that ring of green land around London in which you can't build. I would say that we need to think about that for the Perth Hills. It, it may not mean no development, but it will mean carefully planned strategic development. Uh, and that's what we need, I believe. Thank you very much for that insight, um, Andrew. I, I, I think there is a takeaway, like I think there are many different ideas of how we approach the overdevelopment concern, but I think one thing that we can all agree on and unite uh, ourselves around is that the current business-as-usual approach uh, has to be addressed and stopped. There are alternatives. Let's put them to the table. Last question for Dr. Andrew St. John, convener of a Safe and Scenic 2J Road. How can people help and support the cause? Well, I think uh, people can go to our website. Um, you can find us at www.satr.com. Um, we would welcome people to help us. But I think uh, I think everybody who lives in Perth who's listening to this, some of them I'm sure are keen environmentalists and are very aware of the arguments that we're, we're talking about this afternoon. But I think a lot of people are still unaware of, you know, what a beautiful but fragile environment we have. And continuing economic development, such as building roads and building more houses, uh, and there is an argument to do some of this, but it has to be much more carefully planned. And people need to sort of develop their understanding of this fragile environment and how we can at least preserve some of it and not destroy it like we did to the wheat belt, you know, 150, 100 years ago. 
Yes, let us uh, try to learn from the lessons of the past. <laughs> and, and some of those lessons are literally over the road in case of the wheat belt. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on to this PGAP for this very uh, special episode, Talking Heads episode of Local Action on Big Issues. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me to talk today. listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, where Michael Bayliss and Mark Allen, and we just heard from three wonderful guests, Annabelle Pauley, Chris Poulton, and Andrew St. John. Mark, I'm going to ask you a few questions, um, the same questions I asked the guests, because I'm interested in hearing a town planning rebellion response yes, to those. Yes. Firstly, um, a short brief about Town Planning Rebellion and how it started. Town Planning Rebellion started as a result of my frustration about the fact that, that town planning wasn't treated with the same importance as other important issues like renewable energy, sustainable farming and all of those things. So it was like, we need to make sure that town planning, sustainable planning, is part of the core front and centre of how we tackle the climate and ecological emergency because how we do land use planning is is fundamental you know it's pointless putting solar panels on car dependent urban sprawl the green energy works much better when you got the planning right and of course bad planning is very difficult to reverse um, so you want to get it right first time so to me it was that frustration that led to town planning rebellion it's like let's get decent, nuanced conversation around town planning in place. That led me into understanding that we actually need full-blown systemic change, that under the current system, any kind of so-called sustainable planning is only going to be tinkering at the edges. We actually need to transition to a degrowth society where town planning is working under the premise that we can actually scale down. And then we can get some real decent sustainable town planning done that has a real impact on the climate and ecological emergency rather than now where it's at best damage mitigation. Which I think segues really well into one of the other questions that I asked the guests and that is your personal views around the broader issues of a growth-based developer-led economy and where you see the intersection of the, you know, the more academic, broad-scale system change and the role of grassroots um, organisations, you know, fighting on the ground. There's an element of choosing your battle, but both of those are really equally important and inform each other. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, we're all fighting different battles depending on where our interests lie. So there are some people fighting for more plant-based living. There are people trying to get town planning right, there are people involved in rewilding, there are people trying to get green energy right. And all of these things are important, but we've all got to find a way of building a comprehensive movement. Like I've said before the interviews, we've got to find a common thread is systemic change. If we all understand the fact that unless we transition away from the current growth-based society, 
then everything we're going to be doing is we're just going to be putting out spot fires and we might win the odd battle here and there but we're going to be constantly fighting against this force for growth so for me it's like we can have different opinions we can have different perspectives and that's okay and this is where the holistic activism movement developed it's like we're not going to save the planet with one set of opinions and one approach all we need to do is find a common thread, which is systemic change, behavioural change towards a more ecocentric way of looking at the world. We find those threads and build that movement and focus on our areas of common ground as a, as a way in, rather than getting caught up too much in the areas of disagreement. So, for example, um, people fighting for more plant-based living could work together with farmers who are trying to graze their land more regeneratively by working to help rewild parts of their land or whatever but trying to find common common ground because we're running out of time and the real force that we're up against is growth based neoliberalism and the underlying behavioral aspects that we somehow think we're above the rest of nature Thank you for that. No, that's all right. <laughs> Thanks for the coffee. All three guests were very brave in answering the dreaded population question. <laughs> it shouldn't be dreaded, but yeah, I know. <laughs> it's currently dreaded until we've got enough <laughs> systemic change that people are willing to discuss it openly. For many community groups combating development in their area, mm. It becomes one of those issues that can't be ignored and yet often criticised. There are some community groups I remember in Melbourne that didn't want to discuss the population issue, but then it's just then it comes in another way. Like, okay, so if you want to stop development here, well, then we've got an inevitably growing population. Mm. So where else are they going to go? Mm. Are they going to go everywhere else apart from your green wedge? Mm. So it creates mm. a tension that, mm. you know, developers and the construction industry and governments um, manipulate to their advantage. So, you know, all three guests gave a different, but I think, you know, solid responses to all that. Mm. But I'm wondering how TPR offers away beyond or transcending um, this tension and dichotomy when it comes to the population issue? Yeah, well, this is something I've thought a lot about because when I started looking at planning and came to those realisations like I talked about before, that if you have a constantly growing population, our cities will never be dense enough. And due to the, the somewhat slower nature of densification than sprawl, when you've got a fast a population that's growing fast, you're always going to get sprawl no matter how quickly you densify. Because So the issue for me is how do we approach the population issue in a way that doesn't lead to ideological and dogmatic thinking? Well, the real issue here is we need to look at the fact that population policy should not be determined by developers, property council, and growth-based capitalism. Population policy should be determined around global events and the ever-changing situation that we're living in and understanding the fact that everyone in the world, when given the opportunity to choose the number of children that they want, that fertility rates drop and that that's okay. And we can create a world where it's okay for populations to decline. 
it's incredible the amount of rhetoric in the media about the fact that China's population has started to decline. It's like the whole world has caved in. It's like there's a climate and ecological emergency going on, the extreme weather going on. We're living in such challenging times with such uncertainty and yet the mainstream narrative is so pro-natalist and we've got to reverse that pro-natalist approach and that through degrowth and a post-growth society we will have a different approach to how we look at our economies and they will be very able to accommodate declining populations. We will have a process of mutual aid where countries will work together to share ideas and knowledge across borders and that will lead to women becoming more empowered, more education, more healthcare, the population is naturally declining. So what, we, what we'll do is we'll create a society where we understand that in the medium to long term populations will stabilise and decline, but in the short to medium term they will fluctuate due to world events that we know nothing about, could be climate refugees or whatever. But we won't be coming at it from a property council development point of view, we'll be coming at it from a humanitarian point of view. We won't be, for example, zoning huge areas of robust housing and pulling them down and building expensive high-rise. We'll be focusing on, if need be, building public housing on brownfield sites and cities. We will be able to be, uh, do all kinds of innovative ways of managing fluctuating populations while at the same time creating a society where population decline is not only accepted but embraced as the natural progression of the human condition. A good discussion on that with uh, Isabella Cortez earlier yes. this season, uh, a fantastic perspective that is captured for posterity. Um, this is a very pithy note to end PGAP on for this episode, but please, please share this episode widely among your friends, families, enemies, all three at the same time. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. In the show notes, there'll be links to Friends of Yakamaya, Rethink East Link, Safe Perth Hills and Safe and Scenic 2J Roads all of our guests represent and particularly if you're a West Australian and living in the southwest of West Australia are all very good groups in my own opinion to support. Any parting words Mark? Just thank you for another lovely episode and look forward to joining you again. <laughs>